just to give us a background of what's been happening, we started this series perhaps a month and a half ago. And we started off with Exodus 33, 14 to 17. And to paraphrase all three verses, here's what Moses basically said to God. He said, what else, O God, but your presence will distinguish me and your people from all other people on the face of the earth. Let me say that again. What, thanks man. What else, O God, but your presence will distinguish me and these people from all the other people on the face of the earth. And so we've been talking about the presence and what that does to a people. And last week we started on what are the characteristics, what are the characteristics or what is the outworking of the presence of God in a people? What is the characteristic or what is the outworking of the presence of God in a people? And we are talking about the manifest presence. We are not talking about the presence of Christ in us because you cannot be a Christian unless Christ lives in you. But there is a difference between Christ residing in me and then it being manifested, it being made obvious. That's one of the things God specializes in throughout the Bible. Making his presence in a people and in individuals so obvious that there is no question as to, oh shucks, these guys are different. These are a people of God. And so we said that there are certain characteristics that you will find in a people in whom the manifest presence of God is visible. And those were, one, reconciliation. And pick up that CD if you were not here and listen to it. It's, it's really good. Reconciliation, that's from last week. Prosperity. And you know I'm not a prosperity preacher, but prosperity. Fear of God. Fearlessness, signs and wonders, zeal, zeal, Z-E-A-L, reproduction both in terms of reproducing his image and reproduction as in go forth and multiply as in numerical increase, liberty and dominion. These are some of the most prevalent characteristics of his manifest presence in a people. And when these are shrouded or veiled, then the presence of God is not visible because we become like every other people. A people who do not have the ethos of reconciliation or the principle of reconciliation in them, who are unforgiving, who are bitter, who do not know how to love beyond, are just like any other people in the world. The Lions Club and Rotary Club have more loving members sometimes. A people who um, are not prospering, and today we'll be talking about that. A people who have no fear of God or reverence of God. A people who are not bold. A people who uh, do not believe in or do not expect signs and wonders. A people who have no zeal or passion like Phinehas had. A people who are not increasing numerically, nor reproducing the image of God. A people who do not live in liberty. A people who do not know how to exert dominion are a people like any other people. So what distinguishes us then? The presence of God must distinguish us as a people. And so we look at that today. The absence of these characteristics will shroud the presence of God in the body 
or shroud the presence of God in me as an individual when these characteristics are missing. So, let's talk about prosperity. Guys, prosperity in terms of a characteristic of the presence of God, prosperity is the physical manifestation. Prosperity is the physical manifestation of the blessing of God and it carries in it peace and wholeness. So it's the physical manifestation of the blessing of God. What is? How can we define prosperity today? It's the... Before I write on this... Ouch! It's the physical manifestation as in something that is visible of the blessing of God. And it carries in it peace and wholeness. That's a very summarized way of defining it. There's so much more to it. But if you want a definition of it, prosperity is a physical manifestation of the blessing of God on a person or on a people. And it carries in it peace and wholeness. By the way, mammon, how do you describe mammon? Mammon is this mix of security and money put together that carries in it uh, greed and uh, uh, striving. Yeah, that's one of the ways to explain mammon. Mammon is this is again a powerful um, sometimes sentiment, sometimes commodity, sometimes even a spirit. Mammon is this mix of security and money that carries in it greed and striving. And know this, that mammon can prosper you too. But mammon will prosper you at the peril of your soul because Jesus said, what good is it if you gain the whole world but lose your soul. When Abraham was walking after the battle with the five kings of uh, uh, he's met by the king of Sodom and Melchizedek. And Melchizedek blesses him while what did the king of Sodom offer him? He said you can have all the money but give me the souls of the men you have. So mammon can prosper you too. And so mammon is this mix of security and money that carries in it greed and striving. A consequence of the presence of God in my life or in this or in my house or in this church should be the evidence of me progressing towards prosperity. Ah Jacob, that sounds so much like prosperity preacher. Wait till we get to the end, and then you'll find how different it is. So let me say that again. A consequence of the presence of God, the manifest presence of God in my life or in my house, or in the church, will be that you will see evidence of progress towards prosperity. I mean, when you look at Joseph, when you look at Hezekiah, when you look at David, when you look at Obed-Edom, when you look at Israel, when you look at Abraham, uh, let's just look at them. Genesis 39, verses 2 and 3. Genesis 39, verses 2 and 3. Genesis 39, so it's actually 11. Genesis 39, verses 2 and 3. 
the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Second Kings 18.7 Second Kings 18.7 Second Kings 18.7 And the Lord was with Hezekiah wherever he went and he prospered. And the Lord was with Hezekiah wherever he went, whenever he went out and he prospered. Second Samuel 5.10 Second Samuel 5.10 And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all round from Milo inwards. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Second Samuel 6, 2-12 well, Let's start from... Uh... Verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon Uzzah, you know that story where Uzzah was struck dead. And then go on to uh, and it, verse 12. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. Joel 2, 24-27. Joel 2, 24 to 27. Joel 2, 24 to 27. A Gittite. Um, two schools on that, and I've read both, and I um, perhaps our Greek scholar may have a better view on it, even though he doesn't know Hebrew. But Obed-Edom, the Gittite, is sometimes called a non-Israelite, and other times he's called an Israelite. So let us know. Yeah. Uzzah and Ahiova. Joel 2, 24 to 27. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no one else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. There is a sense in these scriptures and many more that I can pull out where when God is amongst the people, a people seem to continuously progress towards being successful, towards being excellent, or towards prospering in what they are being sent out for. We're not going to be able to cover the entirety of what I want to say today. It might take three weeks, or perhaps this is all we need to say and move on. But here's the thing, guys. The God who owns everything and wants to bless his children is a father, and for a father like that, it is natural to manifest his presence and when he sees your lack, it is natural for him to provide for your lack. Let me say that again. God 
who owns everything is a father who wants to bless his children. Guys, right now only focus on the nature of God. Not Even as I'm saying it, there are questions popping in your mind about 20 scenarios that would seem to um, argue against the statement I'm making. And as much as the 20 scenarios may be real, let me tell you what is realer. The nature of God. God is a owner of everything in the world. He's the owner of everything in the world. He is Father and He wants to bless His children. And in the process, it is very natural for Him when He sees lack to manifest His presence and provide for that lack. Because Jason does that. And he is evil. Uh, Biblical. If Jason being as evil as he is, has the ability to do this for his four children, then I would suggest to you that God the Father has amazing ability to do this for his six billion. This is the nature of God. And even though I can think of scenarios in India, Africa, Canada, in this church, outside this church, in my life, outside my life, that would come against such a statement, I still can't argue with the nature of God. Because that stands solid. So where do we start? I mean, and here's what God does, say, when he sees my lack, and these words are important. I, I, I didn't just put them on a piece of paper just for the heck of it. When God sees lack, he begins to discipline you into prosperity. Write down those words. When God sees lack, he disciplines you into prosperity. Very important line. When God sees the lack in your life as a father, he wants to manifest his presence and provide for the lack. And how does he do that? He does that by disciplining you into prosperity. Hey man, so good to see you after all these days. Yeah, because I haven't seen you for a while. I don't know. You always used to walk past when I'm teaching and you're doing that again. But it's good to see you. So, disciplining you into prosperity. And what does the word discipline involve? Training, instruction, correction. Do you understand why sometimes we we have lack, but when it comes to disciplining me into prosperity, I I, I don't like it. I don't like it. Because there's instruction involved. There's a correction of my mindset and my ways. And there is training. This is the part we don't like. We want to be thrown into prosperity without being disciplined. Hey, our earthly dads discipline us into knowing how to handle money. Some dads did that well. Some dads didn't. And we are the byproducts of it. I know a very, 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 tell me when to stop, very, very, very rich man in Vancouver. And his son uh, was in my Sunday school long ago. And even though he was really, really rich, 
when his son came to work for him, he started him at the lowest place in the factory. I mean, he started him by having him pluck chickens. And he got paid according to the same wages as those others in his other chicken pluckers. And has he become the manager of the company yet? No, he's still only working his way up. And it has given this boy such normalcy and such a uh, such a such a uh, solid base to stand down without pride, without flaunting his riches. Though his father has uh, his father, yeah. Let's not. The point is that father trained him well. And then there are other fathers who do not discipline their sons with regard to money. And they can't understand why the son squanders everything that they built for the son in a matter of years. So if our dads do it, being as evil as they are, then how much more? God. He disciplines us into prosperity. So where do we start, guys? The, the natural tendency in this church would be to say, oh, it's sowing and reaping. Not really, because if you read Matthew 6.26, Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They don't reap or sow. And yet, I provide for them. So sowing and reaping is an important uh, principle that we have taught, that Joan has uh, taken, what, how many weeks? Seven weeks to teach. Sowing and reaping is vitally important and that's part of this equation. But don't think that the answer is sowing and reaping because the birds don't do that and they still do well. So where do we start? What do I have to do to progress? Guys, I have to cultivate a mentality about God, wealth, myself and others. So here's what I need to do. I need to cultivate a mentality about God, wealth, myself, others, and how they all relate, and how they all relate. The nature of each, and how they all relate. I have to, I have to cultivate a mentality about God, and how He relates to wealth, how wealth relates to me, how wealth relates to others, the nature of God, the nature of wealth, my own nature with regard to money, and my nature towards others. It is such, it's not complex, but it is so important to understand the nature and the relationship between God, wealth, me, others, God, wealth, me, others, God, others, me, wealth, others, me. It can get quite busy. So we'll just look at four uh, things today, and then if God wills, then we'll continue this next week or we'll go on to the next topic. I'm not sure yet. So let's look at Matthew 6, 19 to 25 and that's where we'll derive these four principles uh, from. Matthew 6, 19 to 25. Matthew 6, 19 to 25. Can I have some coffee? It's actually good. Yeah, thanks. Matthew 6, 19 to 25. Um, No, a little more than the last time though. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moths and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. 
But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Thanks. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and will love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So this is where we'll, uh, this is what we look at today and uh, stay within uh, these scriptures. Guys, Matthew, uh, let's take the first one. No one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. It's in Matthew 6.24. Even though Jesus says no one can serve two masters, isn't it true that it doesn't apply today? Because aren't some of us holding two jobs? We have two bosses. Some of us have dual citizenship. we got two, two nations that we are mastered by. Moonlighting is common. We can have multiple masters. So how are we supposed to understand you cannot have two masters? Guys, the context is slaves. The context is slaves. It's important to understand that. What Matthew is saying here, when Jesus is saying no one can serve two masters, what he, needs to, what he wants us to understand is that, listen, you can only be a slave to one or the other. We don't understand slavery because it's not something that we are accustomed to. I'm not uh, promoting it either. The, the point is that Jesus is talking in terms of slavery. And here's what a slave was in those days. Wholly owned by the master. Wholly owned by the master. Permanently subjected to the master. Permanently subjected to the master. Permanently subjected to the master. Worked without expectation of pay. Occasionally they would get paid, but worked without expectation of pay and yet was completely dependent on the master for provision <coughs> completely dependent on master for provision and was completely dependent on the master for provision and stewarded everything stewarded everything on behalf of the master Stewarded everything on behalf of the master. Stewarded everything on behalf of the master. And Jesus is saying, listen, this is your choice, Jacob. Either you have to decide that you are wholly owned by me, your master... And that you're permanently subjecting your life to me as master. That you have no expectation of reward or pay as your master. 
that yet you will be completely dependent on me as your master for provision and that everything you have you really don't earn you are stewarding it on my behalf now do you see why i can't serve two masters this is the first thing i need to establish in my heart when it comes to money and god that i can only be a slave to one You cannot be a slave to God like this and a slave of money and security dipped in greed and striving. But our immediate reaction is, but I'm not a slave of mammon. I'm not a slave of money. Guys, if you say that you and I are not slaves of mammon, then here's the question you need to ask. Why are my decisions determined by money which tells me what I can do and where I can go? why are my decisions determined by money which tells me what i can do and where i can go if my master wholly owns me how come mammon can tell me what i can attempt to do where i can go where i should apply for a job what i cannot do how come how come this is why i need to understand my slavery for the lack of a better word to Jesus Christ this is the adjustment that needs to be made in the mind first why is it that my life is consumed full of careful worry about food clothes and rent that's what my mind is consumed with where will the food come from where will my clothes come from where will i pay the mortgage from where will the rent come from these are the things that consume me and mammon or money determines what i can do where i can go it doesn't matter what god says my wallet determines what i do and where i can go even the jobs i choose are not dependent upon god's choices but where can i make the maximum buck for minimum work and yet we have the audacity to say that i'm not a slave of mammon there is a problem here everything good stay with him eh you can pick up the cd later any questions on that before we move on guys this is the first thing i'll have to destroy that i have to become the slave of one where he wholly owns me he i am permanently subjected to him i work without the expectation of pay what i'm completely dependent on him for provision and everything i have i only steward on his behalf this is the hardest thing that's why i put it up first any questions before we go on mad if you need uh, to go to the doctor or have any medical help let us know and we'll drive you there okay okay no questions there do you see there is an issue though and may i suggest to you that all of us have this issue that none of us have come to a point where where we are free of this completely some of us more some of us less the second then the second thing we want to look at is uh, verse in verse 20 21 and 25 lay up for yourself treasures in heaven 
where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in. For where your treasure is, that's the one I want to concentrate on. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then go to uh, verse um, 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or drink, nor about your body, what you will put on it, because life is more than food and body more than clothing. And then verse 33. For the Gentiles seek after all these things. Verse 32. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Guys, the front line of attack in our lives is usually food, clothes, money. Food, clothes, shelter, money. The lack of it or the need for more. This is the front line of the attack on our lives. And yet... The most responsible man who walked the earth makes a highly irresponsible statement. Jesus says, do not be anxious or worried about the very things that are absolutely practical considerations that any normal human being should pay attention to. You should read commentaries on this. None of the commentators will dare say that we should go with Jesus. They'll come up with all kinds of explanations so that you can find some kind of a middle road. But what an irresponsible comment. Do not worry about the practical details of life. And yet it's being made by Jesus. Do not worry about the practical details of life. Why? Because long ago in the parable of the sower, he had made a statement. What is it that chokes out the word? The practical cares of life. Talk about being instructed, trained and corrected or disciplined into prosperity. You see why it's hard. It's easier to side with mammon and prosper. Jesus is saying, you cannot, Jacob, make the practical details of life your primary concern. Jesus is saying, Jacob, you cannot make the practical details of life your primary concern. You cannot do that. My common sense shouts loudly and says, but Jesus, this is absurd. I must consider how I'm going to live. I must consider what I'm going to eat and drink. I must consider how these practical uh, details are taken care of. I scream. Uh -uh. We, We even come up with statements like, but this is only common sense. Jesus calls this common sense carefulness in the life of a disciple, careful unbelief. That's the way Oswell Chambers puts it. The, 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 the common sense carefulness of our life, which we display almost on a daily basis, Jesus, in Oswell Chambers' words, which is an odd way to put it, he calls it careful unbelief. Careful unbelief. And boy, do we indulge in careful unbelief. Don't worry, Matt and James and Derek are getting good Sunday school education in there. Careful unbelief. Guys, when I take the pressure of provision upon myself, I place mammon at the center and my life is ordered by it. When I take upon myself the the pressure of my own provision, I place mammon at the center and my life is then ordered around it. These are extreme statements 
these are extreme statements, but these are true statements. If you want to have God manifest himself by physically blessing you into prosperity, then I so encourage us as a people to begin to make this these colossal mind shifts. Colossal mind shifts. If not for your sake, at least for the sake of your children. So that another generation doesn't go this route. Jesus said, amass treasures for yourself in God. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek. Seek as in pursue. Seek as in um, uh, run after. Seek as in desire. First. First as in time. First as in importance. First as in place. First as in order. Seek first. What? The rule and the reign of Christ. Where? In my life, in my home, in my work. And as I do, what will you do, O God? All other things, all other things, all other things will be added. Added as in annexed and joined to. Added as in proceed further into. Added as in taken and put into. That's what he's saying, man. And so what does seek first for you look like? Discover it. Discover it. What does seek first look like for you? Which is the area that he wants to start it in? Is it your marriage? Then work on it. You'll be surprised as to how you, when you seek first the kingdom in your marriage, you will find that you will become successful and begin to prosper at certain things without having done anything in that area. Seek first in terms of the calling upon your life. Seek first at your work. Seek first the rule and the reign of Christ in terms of your family. Wherever God says seek first, go and do it. Because I guarantee you this. This principle is from the heaven, is from heaven and it works. And if you don't follow it, you will have to become a slave of mammon to prosper. Those are your only choices. Oh, she doesn't like me clapping. The things I have to deal with in this church. Guys, talk back to me about this. Tell me, do you understand why, why no other thing will work, guys, for you? You know, unfortunately, you become a Christian. Yeah, in a way of speaking. Because now, if you were a citizen of Babylon, you could prosper with mammon. But when it comes to being a Christian, when you're part of the kingdom, no? Your righteousness and your seeking it and seeking the kingdom is vital to your prosperity. When was the last time you saw prosperous Christians, man? When was the last time we saw prosperous Christians? How long has it been? It's been a while. And by prosperous, I don't mean cars, houses and stuff like that. Prosperous as in ones through whom money comes and goes and who have no problem with it. How long has it been? It's been a while. I'd so encourage us to get these two things, leave alone the next two things right. These two things right.
questions, comments. I mean, this is not impossible. I'll show you here in this world before I die how this will work. I'm already showing you, but I'll show it to you better. I'll show it to you better. As some of you will show me too. This works, guys. It's got nothing to do with cars and houses. It's got to do with money flowing in and out of your life. Because it's a relationship between God and wealth, myself and others. Mm-hmm. Yep. Questions, comments, disagreements, challenges. You still have to hear and know what to do. Yeah. 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 I'm talking about prosperity only in terms of resources, or in terms of the word wealth, which involves property, resources, money. Yeah, and surprisingly, yeah. Surprisingly, when I seek God in different areas of my life, prosperity is a natural byproduct because all other things are added unto me. I'm talking only about wealth right now. Nothing else. I'm talking about wealth. And wealth includes property, money, resources. I'm only talking about that right now. I know prosperity involves a lot more. But we are only focusing on money right now. And I'm saying to you, as you begin to seek, pursue, um, desire after, first, in place, importance, order, and time, the rule and the reign of Christ in your marriage, in your calling, in what you were meant to do, abandoning the, the trap and the lure of how the world thinks you should operate, abandoning everything else because you're owned by one master and doing it that way, you will find that even though you're focusing on your marriage, you're prospering in other areas. All other things shall be added unto you. Go ahead. What do you focus on first? Um, One of the things I do is I'll ask God, okay, Father, which area uh, do you want to work on? Because there are multiple areas in my life where uh, his rule and reign are not active or are very poor. And so my first thing we go to ask him, Father, what do you want me to work on? So he has to ask, what, is, what do you want me to work on? Which area of my life do you want rule and reign? She has to ask that for herself. Kamal for himself. And God will begin to hone in on a certain place. How do you know that? He'll keep sending people to speak about it. When you read, you will read about it. Your thoughts are consumed with it. God, God thinks that your mind is consumed with. And you realize that this is the area that I now need to pull myself up in. For some of us, you just need to come and ask me, what area should I focus on? I'll tell you. And it'll be a God telling. And you won't like it, perhaps. Some of you will, some of you won't. So? Pardon? Yeah. <laughs> But, but, but come, and at the end of the day, why are we, why are we prospering? Not at all for any other reason. But uh, we'll come to that in about twenty minutes. Any other questions, guys? Ah, okay. Moving on. The next thing is moth, rust, and thieves. 
Uh, it's from Matthew 6:19. That, listen, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust and thieves uh, destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Guys, we grow up learning that our money and our job is our life source and our security. We grow up learning from our parents, learning from the world around us, that the one thing or the two things that you have to be careful, you always have and you never lose, is money and a job. You lose a money or a job and you're done. Money and job never lose this. And so what happens, we grow up knowing this. We've seen our parents go through it. We see other pastors go through it. It's the scariest thing. A pastor losing his job is one of the scariest things that can happen to a pastor's family. This is what we grow up with. And you know what happens then? I now make money and my job my security or my life source. And the moment my job and the money I have becomes my security or my life source, now begins the process of Satan always touching it to bring fear into my life. For the rest of my life, I will always be crippled because there will always be an external attack on two things in my life, my job and the money I have. And time and again, it will cripple me. It will leave me lying down on a bed, unable to get up, because again, the two things that I put my security in, my job and my money, my profession and my money, my career and my money are being touched again and again. And my life is a, a series of ups and downs because it's being touched. The fear of losing money or losing our job drives our livelihood, drives our lifestyle, and drives our life choices. It drives our livelihood, it drives our lifestyle, and it drives our life choices. And so one of the ways we adjust or cope is because we are so scared of losing money, we plunge into stockpiling it. Another dirty word for it is hoarding. Um, we plunge into stockpiling it, or we plunge into protecting it, or we plunge into prolonging it into the future, because surely God will abandon me at 65. Our lives are consumed with it. I want to make a statement here, that you need to just take deep into your heart, deep into your heart. And this is not the statement. I'll t- <laughs> See, as long as your security is tied to money or your job, Satan will disrupt your life by touching it again and again and again. But here's the statement I want to make. Guys, money has the power, money has the power to turn you into an orphan. Money has the power to turn you into an orphan because it cultivates in you a fear of abandonment. Money has the power to turn you into an orphan because it cultivates in you the fear of abandonment. What is the first reaction when people lose things, lose money, lose their job? Oh God, how could you do this to me? How could you abandon me? What happens when your relatives don't give you the money or your parents cut you off or your husband takes away money that is owed you or the wife keeps a separate bank account? The first thing that happens is the fear of abandonment. Money has the power to turn you into an orphan. It cultivates in you and I 
a sense of abandonment. An abandonment that we either blame God for or blame someone else for or blame a boss for. That is the power this thing has. It is wicked. It is wicked. Not money. Mammon is wicked. Money is amoral. Mammon is wicked in the ability to render you an orphan. Powerful thing it is, man. Everything an orphan does is motivated by two things. And both are because of this unrelenting demand of the soul. Everything an orphan does revolves around two things. Provision, protection. Provision, protection. Why do pastors have a contract in a church? Aren't they supposed to be the set men of their congregations? Why do they have contracts? I'm just speaking on pastors. Why? Because it is important for me to protect to protect my interests. Because I'm scared of how you will betray me. And I cannot afford to be abandoned again by another church. An orphan has a mentality of protection and provision. And money has the power to render you and I an orphan. Do you realize why we cry out now? So often when we don't have money, what do we say? Oh God, how could you do this to me? Oh God, you have abandoned me. Oh God, I have prayed. No, 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 no. God is saying, come be disciplined into prosperity. Come be disciplined into prosperity. And that's the one thing we don't want. Started with Adam, guys. Started with Adam. When he abandoned God as his ultimate supplier, what happened? He was discharged to work the land in sweat. Started then. How do I break this? The only way to break this is to come back to God as father. As father. We talked about master and slave. Now we are talking about God as father. Where because mammon has had the power to render me an orphan and to create in me the sense of abandonment which has forced me to seek out my own protection and provision at the expense of keeping God on the outside. The only way to break this orphanhood that I thrive in, that I got from my dad and mom and many others, is to come back to God as father and recognize that my inheritance is in my father and that I am his inheritance. These statements are so full with meaning that we cannot unfold it right now. It's impossible. But go think on just this one line. That I have to come back to God as Father in whom I have an inheritance and whose inheritance I am. In whom I have an inheritance and whose inheritance I am. Think of that connection alone. And it will bring you to a place where you perhaps can break off the orphanhood upon you and go back to the father and say, but my inheritance is in you. What does a son have to do for an inheritance? Nothing. He gets it by virtue of his position, not through striving. And that I am God's inheritance? He says that plenty of places. But Jacob, you are my inheritance. This is a relationship that can bring me back out of orphanhood.
For which one? Uh, I'll find it for you. Yeah, but quite a few. I am God's inheritance. He used to call Israel his inheritance quite often. Israel my son. Israel my portion. Israel my inheritance. These are massive... I'm not stressed. I'm not dramatizing this. These are colossal shifts in my thinking, guys. Colossal shifts. I've been struggling with this. Because I thought I'd come a certain distance and I'm realizing, my God, how, how I am not where I thought I was. Because I don't think like this. Last one. If your eye is healthy... That's what Jesus says in verse 23. That's odd, eh? In 22, he's talking about moths and rusts. In 24, he's talking about you can't serve two masters. And then in the middle, he talks about if your eye is healthy. As, I mean, why did that verse plonk itself there? What is a healthy an eye and a bad eye got anything to do with provision and stuff like that? What's this verse doing there? Look at Matthew 20:15. Matthew 20:15. Matthew 20.15 Most versions, if you have an NIV or an ESV or stuff like that, Matthew 20.15 is that story about how uh, different laborers came at different points during the day and the landlord employed them and he paid them all the same wage, a denarius. And so some of them start complaining. And in Matthew 20.15, Jesus is saying to them, Why do you begrudge me my generosity? Why do you begrudge my generosity? And yet, if it were actually translated as it should be, which you will find in some uh, versions, the word used there is ophthalmos, which is where the whole I thing comes from. What Jesus actually says there is, is your eye evil because I am good? Is your eye evil because I am good? To rephrase it, what is being said there is, A bad eye refers to an eye that is stingy and cannot see the brightness of generosity. A bad eye is an eye that is stingy and cannot see the brightness of generosity. Here is Jesus giving things freely to the ones who have come to work for him and some come to him with an evil eye that looks at him and says, you cannot do this, begrudging his generosity. The whole idea of if your eye is healthy, your body is full of light and if your eye is dark, Oh, great is the darkness within you. It's basically, if, if I were to rephrase it, it would sound like this. Jesus would be saying, hey, if you have a bad eye, it means you have a problem in terms of being stingy, self-consumed, and reluctant in giving. And if you have a healthy eye, it's an eye that enjoys God-like brilliant generosity. That's what he's saying there. And then he's even making the statement that if you're stingy, self-centered, and reluctant in giving, then great is the darkness within you. Ouch! I prefer the other version. If you're stingy, if you're selfish, and if you're reluctant in generosity, then great is the darkness within you, because you have a bad eye. Your life is filled with darkness. But if you are generous and you participate in God-like generosity, then your life is full of light. 
This is what happened in Genesis chapter 13. And you will see God used these lines. Uh, I mean, the Bible used these lines. At one point, Abraham's standing with Lot. And he says to Lot, Look, cast your eye as far as you can and choose what you want. And what does Lot do? He's a junior guy here. But he looks and he sees Sodom and he sees hmm, fertile land. What does he do? Immediately takes it to himself. And Abraham's words to Lot are, cast your eye upon the land and choose what you will so that we don't have strife anymore. And immediately after Lot chooses Sodom which is to his peril a few chapters later, God turns up. And God says to Abraham, now lift up your eyes and look. And wherever you set your feet, I shall give it to you. Abraham was being generous with Lot. Lot was being completely self-consumed. At the end of the day, the reason this verse exists in the middle of this passage, and which seems to have nothing to do with the passage, is actually not true. This is exactly what Jesus meant to say. Is your evil, is your eye evil because I'm good? A bad eye refers to an eye that is stingy and cannot see the brightness of generosity. Rephrase correctly. God-like generosity will fill your life with light. Stinginess, selfishness, and reluctance will cloud your life with darkness and great is your darkness. A whole new way of... Sorry? Greed. Yeah. You see, it gives you a brand new way of seeing who you want to be friends with suddenly. God is the seed giver, guys. Second Corinthians verse nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 10. God is the seed giver. And when he gives me seed, he expects me to sow it. And surprisingly, he's also the bread supplier. We won't go into sowing and reaping today because we've done that before and we may go there next week, but not this week. God is a seed giver. When I sow, he is also the bread supplier. And the strange thing is, every time I sow seed, it's impregnated with this command from heaven. And what is that command? Multiply. Multiply. Every time I sow seed, there is a command from heaven that impregnates the seed I'm sowing. And that command is just one word that was spoken of in Genesis 1. Multiply. And suddenly the seed that I'm sowing multiplies. For the eater, for the sower, for both. And we're not going to talk about that today. What I'm trying to say is, guys, the, at the end of the day, the whole idea of prosperity centers around just one thing. God wants me to be a partaker and distributor of his brilliant, single-minded liberality. God wants me to be a partaker and a distributor of his brilliant, single-minded liberality. I know I've said this before, but the only intent that God has from my, out of my prosperity is this. Jacob, I want you to be the largest conduit or pipe through which money can flow here on earth. And I want you to both partake in and distribute with great God-like generosity and liberality. Wealth, resources and money, wherever I tell it to go. Become the largest conduit you can be. But to become that, I have to be disciplined into prosperity. Disciplined into prosperity. And therein lies our problem. Instruction, correction, training. 
of the way we are. So at the end of the day, I can only be a slave to one master. Will I choose God? Will I seize from my care-filled unbelief and instead seek and amass for myself the treasures of God, the rule and the reign of Christ? Will I destroy my security in money and in my job? Will I pull myself back from the orphan that money has made me? Will I find my life, will I fill my life with God-like generosity and nothing less? Are you generous? Wonderful. I've benefited from it. But do you have the same generosity as God has? And if you don't, there's still room to improve. These are the I keep using the word colossal because that is how huge this is. These are the colossal mind shifts that need to happen in your life and my life if we are to be disciplined into prosperity. Questions, comments, disagreements, challenges? Additions? Reluctance can apply to $2, $20, $2,000, $20,000. Generosity can apply to $2, $20, $2,000, It's not the amount really. Questions, comments? I mean, are, are you agreeing with all that I said? Huh. Yeah. Now go home and listen and listen again and listen again because some of these statements I haven't understood yet. That my inheritance is my father and I am my father's inheritance. If I could grasp that truth, I would be able to become a better slave. Cool.